over 90% of people are usually driving themselves or taking other alternatives. And so I think in that sense, one of the definitely longer term visions of Uber and Lyft are to get people out of their cars. TNCs or transportation network companies like Uber and Lyft have gone from cool to necessity. Their apps not only include the ability to hail cars, but also to select other forms of mobility like e-scooters, e-bikes, and even the option to select public transit. You can now open the Uber or Lyft apps and see public transit options. Famed entrepreneur and venture capitalist Peter Thiel intimated that startup companies should aim to become monopolies because, as he believes, competition is for losers. If you're starting a company, if you're the founder, entrepreneur starting a company, you always want to aim for monopoly. And, um, and, that, uh, and you want to always avoid competition. And so, uh, hence, uh, competition is for losers. Uber and Lyft will never own the full transportation ecosystem. But they can open a vast blue ocean of personal mobility opportunities that starts with their app. Whether it is airport pickup and drop-off, first and last mile solutions, trip chaining with modes of public transit, or the life-saving designated driver scenario, these TNCs are heeding Peter Thiel's advice that competition is for losers. I mean, I think 2020, especially in regards to rideshare, is sort of the year of regulation, just in the sense that a lot of the political will is starting to shift against Uber and Lyft. In 2019, both Uber and Lyft went public, thereby solidifying themselves each as multi-billion dollar companies in our economy. Both of their business models depends heavily on drivers classified as independent contractors to provide rides to passengers. The proliferation of rideshare drivers has caught the eyes and ire of regulators as they begin to rein in on what they believe to be a misuse of the independent contractor classification. In this episode, I wanted to seek out an answer to the question, has ridesharing plateaued? Stay tuned. Before we get to today's episode, listeners, I want to thank Wisco Weekly Media Partners, Automotive Mastermind. Automotive Mastermind is a predictive analytics and marketing automation company. You can learn more about Automotive Mastermind by visiting wiscoweeklypod.com slash mastermind. Also, I want to thank Comotion Miami. Comotion Miami brings together the brave new leaders of the mobility revolution. Their event has been rescheduled to June 25th and 26th at the same location at the Wynwood District in Miami, Florida. Listeners of the show can receive an additional 20% off admission. Whatever it is that Comotion Miami might be offering, Wisco Weekly listeners get 20% off on top of that. You can use the discount code WISCO20, and that's WISCO20, to claim an additional 20% off admission. For more information, you can visit wiscoweeklypod.com slash comotion. Again, wiscoweeklypod.com slash comotion. 
Now, let's get into the episode. I'd always dabbled in various kind of entrepreneurial uh, endeavors. A lot of them were kind of working online and blogging and freelance writing. And Listeners, that's the founder and CEO of TheRideShareGuy.com, Mr. Harry Campbell. He's an ex-Boeing aerospace engineer turned entrepreneur. You know, what I do now running the Rideshare Guy, it's really kind of the opposite of what I used to do as an aerospace engineer. I mean, I think that when I went to college, I sort of just understood that I was somewhat good and somewhat interested in math and science. And so engineering was kind of just a natural, I guess, transition or, you know, you have to pick a major, right? So that's sort of where I started with aerospace because I had a little bit of interest in planes and started working my career as a structural analyst for a company called Goodrich, which later became UTAS, I think is what the initials went through a few different initials, you know, hard to keep track and then worked for Boeing, which most people have heard of. But I think all along, I had a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit and sort of knew that I wouldn't be able to do this for the rest of my life. There were actually guys at Boeing who were sitting in the cubicles next to me who worked in the same building 40 years ago when it was owned by a completely different company building rockets. It was like Rocketdyne or something like that. <laughs> and, you know, just the thought to me, I said, wow, that's pretty crazy, but also not something that I want to do. So in early 2014, when Uber and Lyft really jumped onto the scene, that's when I actually started driving for them on the side just to check it out, just to see what it was like and started blogging about my experience as a driver. And that's sort of how I got started. If the resolution is ride sharing has plateaued in 2020 and you had to make an argument in favor of that resolution, how would you support that argument? If ride sharing has plateaued in 2020, I think that's probably a reasonable statement. I think if you look at the history of the companies, like I mentioned, right, I started driving for Uber and Lyft in 2014, and uh, that was right around the time when they were passing what I call the grandma test, you know, where your grandma may have heard of them <laughs> or your mom, you know, someone maybe outside of the technology loop basically mm-hmm. had heard of these companies and these services. And so I think in any natural uh, business cycle, especially in the startup economy, you have a lot of companies that are raising a ton of money and growing, you know, and then eventually they go public. So that's sort of what we saw with Uber and Lyft. And they're really shifting from more of a growth mindset to a profitability mindset where, you know, the picture that they're painting is not that we're growing quarter over quarter. It's, hey, we're actually now making money on the rides that we are doing and, you know, basic supply and demand, right? If they start charging more and making more money, the number of rides are going to go down or plateau, you know, their growth may plateau. So, I think it's pretty reasonable to expect that outcome. And what if you were to take the negative to disagree the fact that ride sharing is, well, again, right, the, the, yeah. the resolution is ride sharing in 2020 is plateauing. If you were to disagree with that statement, what would your argument be for that? Sure. Well, I think that if I was going to disagree with that, I would say that if you look out at the number of vehicles on the road at any given time, there's been, you know, Uber and Lyft have been in the news a lot lately because of congestion and kind of the negative impact they're having on congestion. But at this end of the day, if you look at the actual studies, their single digit percentage congestion, so maybe 6%, 8% in all 
all of the major cities um, for the most part, as far as, you know, kind of like the total number of cars on the road or the, you know, aspect of congestion that they're causing. And so if you think about it like that, well, wow, actually over 90% of people are usually driving themselves or taking other alternatives. And so I think in that sense, one of the definitely longer term visions of Uber and Lyft are to get people out of their cars in exchange for taking things like Uber, of course, but also bikes and scooters, which they also both now have in their app, even public transit. You can now open the Uber or Lyft apps and see public transit options. Uber has a couple integrations with public transit companies where you can actually now pay for a public transit ride in the Uber app, which is kind of crazy. And a lot of people always ask me, like, why the heck would Uber want someone going into their app and not taking an Uber? But Yeah, that seems almost counterintuitive to a quote-unquote you know, publicly traded company that's right. going after and, profits. And so I think one of the innovative things that the companies have been doing of late that kind of builds into this argument is that they sort of understand it might cause some short-term negative effects if people on shorter rides or, you know, the one-off situation here in LA where maybe taking the Expo line from Santa Monica to downtown is actually a lot faster on the Expo line than it is on Uber. But if that can over time get people to, let's say, ditch their cars completely and now they rely on a suite of, you know, public transit, Uber, bikes, scooters, Uber owns a lot of those legs of the stool. They're never going to own public transit, but they own a lot of the other legs of the stool. So the guy, you know, who takes Uber on the weekends to go to the bars or, you know, go out to dinner here and there might be taking two or three trips. And now they might double that. They might triple that, um, even if they're taking a number of other, you know, public transit type options. Doubling and tripling the amount of trips using Uber or Lyft is a common technique by tech companies known as stickiness. The more times you use an app, or the longer you stay in an app, the stickier that app is. The stickier it is, the greater likelihood for you to transact. Here's Jonah Bliss, the director of marketing for Comotion Miami, to share more. And I think you're almost seeing sort of a, a WeChat sort of model where, you know, from the operator's perspective, they want you in their app as long as possible and doing everything you can. So uh, if you're Uber, that means you're also booking your transit in there. If you're Lyft, that means they've experimented with, I think, you know, long-term car rentals as an option as well, which I think is fascinating. And now we've also seen Bird move to um, payments in the Bird app. And so it's basically about keeping you stuck in their ecosystem as long as possible. So if you're hungry, you want delivery, you go to Uber. If you want to get downtown, you go to Uber, whether it's in their car or on a train. Um, and they just it's stickiness. It keeps you in the app. If you go out and talk to any one driver, their personal experiences could be very different than another driver, right? If there's someone doing 50 hours a week, they may hate driving for Uber. <laughs> you know, they're sort of working full time. They probably want to be an employee. They may not, you know, have run into a bunch of issues with Uber versus someone who maybe only goes out, you know, maybe they're a teacher and they only drive for Uber in the summers and it's a great kind of flexible gig. They probably are huge fans of Uber and love driving for them. So for me, what I try to do uh, a lot with my interactions with whether it's media or people in the industry is just kind of collate all of those experiences. You know, I've obviously worked for all these services myself, but I've also talked to tens of thousands of drivers over the years and kind of understand, okay, that, you know, on a certain issue, there may be drivers that are split. Like right now, AB5 is a big issue in California that would make drivers employees. California Assembly Bill 5 is a state statute that classifies independent contractors as employees. 
and hence grants these employees normal labor protections, like qualifying for minimum wage, sick leave, unemployment benefits, and workers' compensation. And the companies are very much against it. But in the driver community, it's very split. If anything, more drivers want to stay independent contractors. So if you talk to... Well, and I think, you know, not all regulation is created equal, right? Like, we've seen a movement as of late to kind of roll back things like the fact that, you know, in many states, to cut hair, you need thousands of hours of experience. And you need a permit, yeah. basically. Yeah. And that's, you know, absurd barrier that keeps, you know, low-income people from what should be a pretty accessible career. Um, so, yeah, like, let's make that easy for people. But at the same time, you know, some things, those regulations exist for a purpose, and that's to both protect the person supplying the service and to protect the people uh, receiving the service. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I think what I've found too with regulation is that often the best kind of regu- regulatory policies and outcomes kind of come when, you know, each constituency is listened to. But also, I mean, like with Uber specifically, I see a lot. I've been like surprised in my talks, you know, because I've sort of been at the forefront. A lot, you know, Uber and Lyft have been a lot of in, involved in a lot of regulatory battles, and I've sort of been there right in the middle <laughs> or on the side, however you want to look at it. And especially on the regulatory side, like I've met with legislators in California, in Austin, when Uber and Lyft pulled out of there over fingerprints. Um, you know, so I met with a lot of these people and I feel like a recurring theme for me has been that they often like don't even really understand the basics of Uber and Lyft. They may not take Uber and Lyft. They may not really, you know, they might have talked to some drivers, but, you know, again, right, they might have talked to like one driver who, you know, is working full time and hates it and they haven't talked to the other, you know, 45,000 drivers in LA, right? One such state legislator who has been an opponent of AB5 is Kevin Kiley, California's representative of the 6th District. On his Twitter feed, he shares several testimonies of people who have been adversely affected by this bill. In the other corner is the California legislator who helped sponsor and codify this bill into law, Ms. Lorena Gonzalez. She has been a fervent proponent of AB5 and is quoted as saying that she will fight any attempt to repeal it. Since the rideshareguide.com connects tens of thousands of drivers, I asked Harry if Congresswoman Gonzalez sought out his advice for Assembly Bill 5. Did Lorena, did, did she seek out your counsel? So I actually have known her for a while. She's the assemblywoman from San Diego, and she her staff reached out to me, I want to say three or four years ago, for a different bill that would actually give independent contractors the right to collectively bargain. So, which was kind of like a cool, I thought was, oh, it's kind of cool. It like keeps the status quo, but gives them a little extra power to like go to Uber and Lyft and say, hey, pay us more, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. to me, that seemed like a good thing. So I actually paid for myself to fly up to Sacramento. And I testified um, in front, I guess it was a a subcommittee, I think um, was what it was. And it didn't actually make it out of that committee, but it was a really good experience. I wrote about it. And uh, so I sort of knew her from that. But when she went ahead and went forth with the uh, AB5 legislation, no, I I was a little surprised since we had this relationship, or at least, you know, maybe more on my end. But... Well, I think that you, what you have to understand in probably regulatory battles like this, and I think really all aspects of life, is that there's trade-offs, right? right? So anytime you benefit 
one group, you often hurt another group. So yes. with AB5 particularly, I've been very clear. I think that if you're a full-time driver right now doing 40 to 50 hours a week working for Uber and Lyft, you're basically working like an employee already. You don't have a ton of flexibility. You kind of have to drive when and where they tell you to drive. And the job probably, you know, isn't great. I mean, it's a job, you know, it's, mm. it's 40, it's another, any other job. If you're doing it five to 10 hours a week or 10 to 20 hours a week, flexibly, if that's a word, um, you know, you kind of are on the other side of it. You can kind of see how you don't want to be an employee because things will change. And we're actually already seeing that New York City passed a minimum pay, which it kind of equates to a minimum wage, which basically requires Uber and Lyft to pay drivers, you know, more than what they were paying in the past. And so now in New York City, you can't just log on whenever and wherever you want because Uber and Lyft aren't going to pay you a minimum wage to not do trips. So now you have to schedule shifts, um, just like a lot of the delivery apps, actually, like DoorDash and Postmates, you have to actually go in and schedule shifts and schedule blocks. And so you're giving up some freedom, but now you're getting something in return. You're getting that minimum pay. And in my opinion, I think that's a fair trade-off. A lot of drivers in New York City are really pissed off about this, but it's because I think that no one explained the trade-offs to them before, you know, before I mean, this minimum pay was I mean, passed. I, I think the one, if I had to see any kind of silver lining in AB5 is that it has put more urgent pressure on Uber and Lyft to start to not only look at, but start to enact better things to take care of their drivers. I mean, I think 2020, especially in regards to rideshare, is sort of the year of regulation, just in the sense that a lot of the political will is starting to shift against Uber and Lyft. And, you know, four or five years ago, when they burst on the scene, everyone loved them and everyone wanted to take rides and were very supportive whenever they faced legal or political threats. They could kind of rally their user base. I don't know if you remember in New York City, they had uh, Mayor de Blasio was trying to cap the number of Uber vehicles. And within a few days, Uber launched this feature where it was an option instead of UberX or Uber Black, you would select Uber you would select Uber de Blasio mode and it basically <laughs> would show you, hey, there's no cars available, right? It would show you like a world, you know, what the world would be like if this law passed. That's why when people ask me if I'm for or against AB5, I, you know, I say, if you, if you want the short answer, it's no. I mean, I guess it's already passed now, but, you know, when people ask me this, I would say the short answer is no, but, uh, you know, like with a lot of things in life, it's complicated and here's, you know, the 20 minutes of talk why. <laughs> I mean, I... Put, putting yourself in the senator of Lacey, in which we're in your office here, if you had to suggest improvements to the ride-sharing economy, what what would you propose? Well, I think what I would start with is the things that all drivers care about. I think that there's a lot of low-hanging fruits right now. It seems like a lot of the labor battles benefit one side or the other. You know, let's say with AB5, it's going to potentially benefit a lot of the full-time drivers and not the part-time drivers. But I think that there are things that every driver cares about making more money. So a minimum wage, for example, that's why I'm such a big fan of the minimum pay rules that they put into New York City is because it puts a floor on your earnings, right? And so now, Everyone, no matter when and where they go out, they're going to have a minimum. I think that's a good thing. Um, there's a city of Seattle, for example, is actually there. They raise taxes on Uber and Lyft trips. But one of the things they're doing is they added a third party driver resolution center. So right now, if you're an Uber driver and you get deactivated by Uber because some passenger says you were drinking while you were driving, which and was, you were, you know, mm -hmm. and you were not, yeah. mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you actually have no recourse. You can't 
delete, you know, if Uber says you're deactivated, you don't have anyone you can talk to. You don't have anyone you can call. It might be your main source of income. Um, you know, I guess you could go try and drive for Lyft, but, um, you know, in, in that type of situation, you're basically, you know, out of luck. And the city of Seattle is now, you know, creating like a basically arbitration type process where you can kind of come and bring your case, right? So now if a, if a driver is following, you know, my site, they'll know that the first thing you get is a phone mount. The second thing you get is a dash cam in case any of these types of situations come up. Yeah, so we, we put out this great white paper, thanks to Harry and, and uh, Blair Schlechter, came out in uh, January. But the impetus was um, LAX is undergoing an enormous, uh, long overdue um, sort of infrastructure enhancement. So um, they're redoing a bunch of the terminals. They're finally adding a train link. Um, and to the train link, there's going to be a kind of interterminal uh, automated people mover. That's going to be cool, actually. It's going to be cool. I'm, look, I'm looking forward. Only, I think that, yeah. only 40 years after every other major airport <laughs> in the world. Um, but I mean, anyone that's visited, you know, since basically the dawn of Uber and Lyft, you've seen that it just didn't work. You'd wait, you know, 30 minutes for the your car to kind of circle the the double horseshoe, and you'd, you'd see it waiting in the kind of lot, and then kind of just sometimes never arrive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was already untenable, but the kind of technical issue is that to build the people mover, they have to further reduce the lanes in the uh, horseshoe. And so it was just going to be too many cars, not enough space. And so that basically forced their hand to seriously rethink how to deal with Uber and Lyft at the airport. And that was really kind of the goal of the report. It was to kind of examine what the issue was and really the fact that a lot of airports around the country are going to be facing similar issues. You know, the number of passengers traveling every single year is increasing at basically every airport. A lot of airports in the U.S. have kind of this aging infrastructure. We joked about LAXs, but I think a lot of other airports in the U.S. are are not great either, especially if you've ever traveled internationally. Like, you'll fly out of Hong Kong airport and you're like, whoa, this place, you know, you can actually check in your bags before you get onto the metro. Um, you know, you know, I mean, there's oh, like cow, cool, really? there's cool stuff like yeah. that, right? Huh. Like there are like le- years, leaps and bounds. Although LA does have a very cool proposal to be doing something similar. Um, but that was really kind of the the goal of the report. And then what I also was very interested in is, you know, I'm not a transportation and policy expert, but I do know Uber and Lyft really well, right? And so what I wanted to highlight were the available features that, um, you know, some very cool things that Uber and Lyft have added, like technological features. One of the ones that we featured was called Rematch, which I think is a really great way to take advantage of technology. So the way that that feature works, for example, is that after I drop off a passenger in the terminal, right? So I'm an Uber driver. I drop Jonah off in terminal two. I can now match with another passenger who needs a ride out of the terminal. So sort of like I'm already leaving anyways, I might as well pick someone up on my way out. And that's something that's sort of been enabled by technology. Um, And, you know, one of the kind of positive aspects of Uber and LAX doesn't really effectively take advantage of that. They still have rematch, but you can't, since you now can't pick up anyone at the terminal, you have to leave the terminal and go to what they call a uh, wage, uh, sorry, waiting lot Mm -hmm. and or staging lot. And then once you get called, you can go to the LAX. 
valet exit lot. And so now the rematch basically just lets you bypass that first right. waiting staging lot and go directly to LA exit lot. But it doesn't really save you because then, you know, it still might take 30 minutes to get in and out of the LA exit and lot. And this a goes back to your previous point of just taking care of the drivers because that would be more beneficial to the drivers. Well, and I think that's the thing that you, you know, this is a pretty complex, uh, you know, system and setup and there are a lot of different parties and constituents. And so that's sort of what we did. You know, we went and interviewed people from Uber. We went and interviewed people from Lyft. Of course, we knew lots of passengers that wanted to share their opinion. We talked to some experts, like some people from uh, John Rassant, like the founder of Comotion, you know, kind of kind of collated everyone, talked with the airport teams, actually, the COO and his team, who's now the CEO of LAX and, you know, sort of just kind of trying to understand each person's viewpoint because you're right like that rematch feature probably benefits drivers a lot more but one of the things the LAX um, team did mention to us is that one of the downsides of rematch is that it has multiple curb impacts so the first if you pick up someone in terminal two um, and then you have to make another stop on terminal four that's great but you're now also sitting on the curb in terminal four so it's sort of about like how do you balance that with also the fact that you know and then like incentivizing the right types of trips like you can actually still call call an Uber Black trip at LAX and get picked up right on the curb. And it's only $4, um, I want to say either for, I can't remember. So uh, it's $4 on UberX for pickup and drop-off. So $8 total, those are the fees that you pay to LAX, but it's only $4 for a pickup and a drop-off on Uber Black, which to me right off the bat seems a little- $5. I think, uh, I, I think yeah. in the report it's $5. $5 for Uber Black. Red. Yeah, wow, wow. You actually, well, you might know the report better than me. <laughs> but I mean, it's generally like if anything, I would expect it to be more than Uber X, right? So you actually have Uber Black um, passengers who are paying less um, than UberX or sharing shared pass, shared pool passengers. I think right? that I think so. that one is the more confusing elements of the quote unquote business model of ride sharing at an airport is the fact that if you're trying to lessen the amount of congestion in the horseshoe, then if you do Uber share or whatever whatever Uber pool, Uber, Uber pool that there should be a discount per passenger, but there's not. Yeah. And what's interesting too, though, and that's sort of why it's very important, you know, like I said, like this is very complex. And I, I think that, you know, we had some recommendations in the report, but it wasn't necessarily you, sh this is the only way to do it. I think it's like every airport has to look at and understand what are our goals and initiatives and what do we care most about? Because this rematch feature, if we care most about, for example, like reducing um, curb impact, then maybe rematch, you know, since it has a second impact on the curb, you know, if they can't find a way to have a pickup and drop off spot in between terminal three and four, for example, then it may not work. But I at least want them to know that those options are there. And that was really one of the goals with the report is I wanted to put out these pretty cool features and just make sure that everyone understands the tools that are available, right? Like I, you know, if they're asking Uber and Lyft for this data or this or that, you know, one of the other things we shared in the report, I literally put a screenshot in from my Uber driver app of the surge maps so that you could kind of understand the supply and demand side of the equation. Because when we were talking with the airport team, they described this situation to me where there were no cars, you know, in the LA exit lot, but there were a bunch sitting in the staging lot and they couldn't understand why. And I knew that if I would have been on site there, with my driver app in hand, I could have easily looked at the queue and 
and seen, you know, okay, no drivers are in the queue right now. Maybe that's because Lyft has some bonus that they're paying, or maybe Lyft is on primetime pricing. So, you know, all the drivers that like to do Uber and Lyft have logged off Uber and gone to Lyft. Like it would have been very easy to diagnose. But I think at the end of the day is like one thing I've found is you can't regulate demand away. Like if people want to take a certain mode or if they want to do a certain thing, you know, if they really want to take Uber and Lyft to the airport, they're going to sort of find a way to make it happen. Um, and so if you put in a system that kind of makes the most sense, like I think that one of the main, you know, I wouldn't say findings, but, you know, one of the main points I wanted to make with the report is that I think in that transition phase in the first week or two when they set up the LA exit lot, I think there were definitely some recommendations we had in there just, just would have made the process a little smoother, right? Like instead of flipping the switch on day one and, you know, even to their credit, you know, they, we did say, you know, in the positive nature, they did do it on a Tuesday and a few other items, but, you know, just sort of, and there weren't any huge huge major holidays coming up. And so I think they had some smart planning around it, but even, you know, kind of slowly transitioning over some of these services, right? And like understanding like Lyft, for example, they have an option where, you know, if you request a ride and it's at a time where it's close, the price is close, you know, maybe because of prime time or surge pricing to the next level of service, they'll nudge you to that higher level of service, right? Like a Lyft Lux, which is their Uber Black, just to make that first week easier. So instead of everyone like now having to go over into this LA exit lot, like maybe they keep their mid-level luxury, you know, their premium services mm -hmm. that you can still do it on the curb just so it's like makes it a little easier because I, I know I saw a tweet from an LA Times reporter, Laura Nelson, who is a big transportation reporter here in LA and has covered a ton of different really important issues. And she tweeted something out that said, I have gotten more emails about this LA exit transition, you know, negative emails <laughs> um, from her readers than she's gotten on any topic that she's ever covered in her journalism career. And when I saw that, I really wanted to include it in the report, but uh, Blair said it was uh, not it's not professional to include tweets. In Blair, the yes, of course <laughs> it is. <laughs> Businesses like hotels, concert venues, sporting events, and even airports have done a lot to accommodate rideshare companies. Even till this day, the location of pickup and drop-off points are still very fluid. As more rideshare drivers occupy public roads and with the money that floats in the hands of these transportation tech companies, it was only a matter of time until big business met big government. So to answer the question, has ride-sharing plateaued? Yes, I do believe it has. And as Harry alluded to earlier, 2020 will be the year of regulation for the ride-sharing economy. Coupling the regulation with profit-seeking motives, then inevitably growth slows down. And as someone who came from the automotive retail space, where a dealership operation has been heavily regulated for decades, then this will be the same path of Uber and Lyft. A dealership operation is a well-oiled machine and it's been capable of surviving some of the harshest of economic times, and it's also acquiesced and fought back against the overreach of government regulation. Uber and Lyft's fate is no different. They too are well-oiled machines and they will prove their resilience over time. There's just a tremendous unmet demand for decent transportation in this country. Um, and so I think it's encouraging to see 
improvements, you know, such as this, where even if they're not rolled out perfectly, they're rolled out pretty well. And then the, you know, LA World Airport, to their credit, you know, improved it. They expanded the lot. They saw what needed to be fixed. Um, and so I think even just, you know, casually talking with, um, you know, rideshare drivers or, you know, just fellow citizens, everyone's, you know, the first week they're like, oh, it's a nightmare. And then another two weeks later, like, it's great. And like, you <laughs> forget that they ever didn't like it. Yeah. I'm hopeful that other airports with aging infrastructure can learn from this and, and you know, adopt the best practices. Uh, I am hopeful that people can sort of see a bigger picture about how, you know, mass transit, especially when paired with, uh, you know, TNCs, can work better than just doing one or the other. Um, and, and just kind of big picture, like this is how we can move forward. And I mean, I think if I could add to that too, I think one thing that I've seen in transportation mobility a lot is that often some of the best proposals and outcomes are unpopular at first, right? Whether it's something like decongestion pricing or this change at LAX, it's right. Like everyone's going to kind of hate it at first, but it's sort of like, you know, it's good for them. So you have to find the best way to get it over the, you know, over mm -hmm. the finish line mm -hmm. or, you know, even get it there in the first place and then sort of just make sure that it's as smooth as possible. Um, so that, you know, when you, you know, if you're confident enough that your end result is going to be better than before, you want to do everything in your power to not shoot yourself in the foot, for example, right? And that was, you know, just one of the other things we wanted to highlight with the report is that, you know, I mean, I had, you know, anecdotally, like I had people coming to me saying like, oh, I'm not flying into LAX anymore. I'm doing Burbank. Um, oh, you know, I'm going to call up uh, Uber Black instead. And I'm like, it was kind of bad for the first week or two legitimately yeah, but right. now it's completely no, now fine, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, if, now if you fly into southwest it's, if you fly into southwest terminal, terminal one, one i mean it's easy it's, yeah it's literally like you're literally way walk, fast. walking you across walk the street go, minutes, go downstairs yeah, and you're there an uber yeah i would i recommend taking uber if you're from terminal one because it's actually a little closer than lyft so you'll you can literally be two minutes and be sitting in an uber you save yeah, <laughs> one one crossing the street I think, one right? crossing the street yeah well, thank you, guys. Thank you, Jonah. Thank you, Harry. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Listeners, I'll put uh, all the notes on the episode page on how to follow uh, these two gentlemen. And on behalf of myself, Harry, and Jonah, as we end every episode, cheers. Prost. Lachaim. Kipis. Nastravi. Salut. Kampai. Mabruk. Tutsins. Gambe. Yamas. Nastarovia. Vo. And salute to the customer experience. Hey listeners, co-host Kelly Cruz here. Thank you for joining us on another episode. Always very appreciative to have you along for our journey. We're also very appreciative for two of our great partners, Automotive Mastermind and Co-Motion Miami. Just the beginning of a lot of great things that we have coming up for you. If you are enjoying being along with us, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or Facebook. Another way you can rate and review is to check out our episode page and follow the link there. Not sure what the top rating is, but if you are having a great time, give us that top rating. If you're not having a great time, then let us know why and how we can improve. So we look forward to uh, continuing to make things even better. We look forward to being with you soon. <laughs>